Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Can I just ask? Shut up, Evan. I'm curious. Could you shut up, Evan? One thing I was thinking about. Shut up, Evan. So there are some rumors out there. Evan, shut up! Is it okay if I just ask? Shut up, Evan. Okay, but can I just... I didn't even say anything. Hi, good people. It's Evan Ross Katz, and you are listening to Shut Up Evan, a podcast about gay shit and internet culture. And this is Jennifer Coolidge giving what I would deem an award-winning pregnant pause. Heels or flats? Uh, I guess I like platforms. That clip is from a new cover interview Jennifer did in Variety magazine. There are multiple images that accompany the piece and a six and a half, seven minute video that is really, really good, really, really funny. She she definitely takes it there. It made me hanker for the day that she is given the Vanity Fair lie detector treatment. Although I have reason to believe that Jennifer would not be keen to do a video like that, it would be instant iconography, and I hope that we will one day get it. In the accompanying piece, we got our first look at Tanya in The White Lotus Season 2. For those that uh, zoomed in on the image or just have good eyesight, I do not, um, you will see that Tanya is wearing a wedding ring. So that leads one to think that perhaps Tanya and Greg are married or get married, and I'm really curious to see where they take things uh with the character i'm also curious to see if anyone from season one pops back up on the show um one because i want to see more of the characters that we fell in love with but i also know mike white to be a person that likes working with people on multiple projects that's why he brought jennifer back that's why i imagine he brought molly shannon back Um, she did, the two of them did Year of the Dog together years earlier. This all to say we will be watching and I highly encourage people to check out that interview. I am hopeful that we will hear more from Jennifer Coolidge on Shut Up Evan this season. Um, I would say more, but I would have to kill you, the listener, and I need you, the listener, to survive because without you, we have no listeners. Um, I do want to touch down on this concept of bad faith takes um I was not so much familiar with like the idea of like the bad faith actor or like the or just bad faithism as a concept I mean obviously I've heard about it but I hadn't really considered it until I did an interview with uh Joel Kim Booster the writer star and uh producer of Fire Island uh I did a little profile of him for GQ magazine and he was talking about bad faith tweets about the film itself. And I hadn't really thought about that, but I, of course, am familiar with the concept he's speaking about, which is that people that sound off on something and willfully remove the necessary context in order to rile people up or in order to get a viral tweet. So the reason I wanted to bring this up today was because recent headlines, one of which I shared because the clipped out headline alone is funny. It's funny at its base level to some people, me being some of the people that would find it funny. Basically, the headline that I saw going around on Twitter was that Demi Lovato, who had identified, come out identifying as non-binary uh, several years ago, is now using she, her pronouns once again. 
And I think the implication that many of us took from that was that they were no longer using they, them pronouns, and they were now using she, her pronouns. And this all came about because an interview that Demi did on a recent podcast. And so basically what was funny about the clip for someone like me, I can only speak for myself, is that I think for many people, when we have prominent celebrities like Demi Lovato coming forward as non-binary, they're often given a platform because of their celebrity to speak about being non-binary. And for a lot of people within the community, again, I'm not among that community, but I am within the LGBTQ plus community. And part of that plus does, it does, you know, invite non-binary people into the conversation. Part of that is to say that it's censoring someone whose experience is of great privilege and who does not sort of have to deal with some of the day-to-day ways in which being a non-binary person living in a largely binary world contends with, I don't want to necessarily say oppression, but sort of contends with ways in which their their identity is either demeaned um, or not even recognized, right? And so for someone like Demi Lovato, they have a ton of privilege. And yet, you could also argue, isn't it great to have someone as you know, famous as Demi Lovato, able to carry the torch or able to, you know, to wave the flag of, you know, non-binary identity for many outside of our community. You could argue both ways about it. But I think what got lost in the sauce here is that I saw like this, again, going back to the bad faith, the bad faith takes of it all. There's a tweet from someone named Blair White. I'm not going to look up who they are, who this person is, because I don't want to dignify them. But they have a tweet that has over 25,000 likes as of this recording. And it says, Demi Lovato is now detransitioning, which for her means switching pronouns. Again, many kids she's helped to misinform about transgenderism are not as lucky and won't make it out without missing body parts. This is an insane, insane tweet. Okay, let's start there. But also... A non-viral tweet, but one that I put in this same category, says Demi Lovato is a good example of why we need to stop pushing the pronoun bullshit on children. Adults can't even keep up. Okay, all of this, I think, is sort of taking the Demi quote and removing a necessary part of the context. So rather than me break it all down, I actually wanted to throw to the actual you know, conversation or, or, or what Demi herself said because I think it adds necessary context. I've I've actually adopted the pronouns of she, her again. So for me, I'm such a fluid person that I don't really, I don't find that I am, I felt like, especially last year, my energy was balanced and my masculine and feminine energy. So that when I was faced with the choice of walking into a bathroom and it said women and men, I didn't feel like there was a bathroom for me because I didn't feel necessarily like a woman. I didn't feel like a man. Um, I just felt like a human. And that's what they, them is, is about for me. It's just about like feeling human at your core. Recently I've been feeling more feminine. And so I've adopted she, her again. Okay. So within all of that, you hear Demi basically saying that she is now once again, adopting uh, she, her pronouns. It does not say that she is no longer using they, them. As I think you heard when I was speaking about her earlier, I sort of am fluid about going between they, them, she, her when referring to Demi. And actually, if you go on her Instagram, the pronouns listed are they, them, she, her. Which is all to say that I think, and again, I can't speak for Demi. I can only speak for what I understand. What Demi is saying is that there are so many people out there that when referring to Demi, will refer to Demi as she, her, and someone might correct them and say, oh, no, no, Demi is non-binary. They identify as they, them. And I think Demi is just widening the scope and saying, all of that works for me, right? I am she, her, if, if, that's, if that's easier for you. But, but by identifying as she, her, that does not invalidate the fact that Demi Lovato identifies as non-binary. I think, and going back to the bad faith of it all, a lot of people focus in on pronouns much more um, 
in ways to oppress people outside of, you know, people that use a variety of pronouns or that do not identify as he, him, she, her, to sort of misconstrue the conversation at play here, right? So I don't think, yes, is it funny to look at a headline that basically is like Demi Lovato, who changed her pronouns to begin with, is once again changing them? Yes, I understand how on the surface it's funny just because it's like, you know, it's like a maze that we're all in, figuring out, you know, who identifies as what these days. And sometimes, it, yes, I understand how people, it can be to people outside this community confusing. Let me just say, it can be from within the community. It can also be confusing. But there's a difference between confusion and ignorance and the espousal of said ignorance. And I think a lot of people that are speaking about Demi are doing so out of bad faith. You know, again, again, even using the term like detransitioning, that that was never spoken about by Demi whatsoever. I want to highlight a tweet from uh, Mary Emily O'Hara that also went viral, fortunately more viral than that hateful tweet that I read earlier. It says, read Demi Lovato, many non-binary people use multiple pronouns. Lovato saying they're using she, her in addition to they, them. It's very common and not a big deal. Please do not insert some kind of reversal or detransitioning narrative where there is none. I mean, I really couldn't have said it better. I think I tried to earlier, but that said it much, much better and much more concise. But I understand that this is like a new concept, right? For a lot of people that are in an older generation, even people in my generation and younger, this can be, it takes time to understand, right? And I really think that this is a good opportunity to have larger conversations about the ways in which some people go out of their way to invalidate people's identity. All this just to say, I think that a headline that says Demi Lovato changing pronouns, I shared it in the beginning with a little, little bit of an eye roll. And although I don't think I was doing it in bad faith, I think that I was allowing a pile on because I myself was missing the necessary context because I understand how when you look at the tweet, the single tweet of being like Demi Lovato, who famously changed their pronouns from she, her to they, them, is now saying they also identify with she, her pronouns. Like it seems like a regression, but on closer examination, it's not a regression. It's a yes and the primary rule of improv. I'm excited to welcome another non-binary individual onto this podcast, speaking of non-binary people, and that is the great Jinx Monsoon. I was so excited when I got this interview scheduled weeks ago because I had a feeling Jinx would be taking home the crown, and it's exciting. It's exciting to have a our latest Drag Race All-Stars winner, our first queen among queens. She is the first two-time winner of Drag Race in history on our first all-winner season, the first of what I hope, I don't want to say are many, but I I hope we get another all-winner season. Um, and I think it's a great bookend to Jinx's journey on this show. We first were introduced to them nearly a decade ago uh, in 2013 on season five of Drag Race. And here they are, again, nearly 10 years later, taking home the crown once more. A perfect track record on Drag Race. I Compare her on the podcast you're going to listen to to Sandra Diaz Twine, um, the two-time Survivor winner. But interestingly, Sandra has played Survivor three times and lost her third time. And Tony, who won Survivor in his first season and won Winners at War, appeared on Game Changers with Sandra and also lost that season. So there's no one to really compare this to that I'm aware of that has gone on a reality show two times and two times only and won both times. I could be wrong, but to the best of my knowledge. But anyway, I'm really uh, glad and uh, overjoyed that Jinx made time in their very busy schedule to sit down and chat. And I hope you enjoy this interview. They are a drag performer, actor, comedian, and singer best known for winning the fifth season of RuPaul's Drag Race and the seventh season of RuPaul's Drag Race All-Stars, and in doing so, becoming the first person to win two seasons of the show. There's so much more to tell you about this guest, like their first studio album, The Inevitable Album, which was released in 2014, or their second studio album, The Ginger Snapped, which was released in 2018, but I think instead, I'll just throw to them. Hello, 
monsoon. I'm here to make your steps unswoon. I'm, I'm in it to win it. I'm fierce like a cougar. Rise to the challenge, get the judge to see it. Ooh, girl. Grab a dub dub, get in my tub. Mommy's gonna scrub down all of these subs. Yes, I'm Jake's and I aim to please. If you don't believe me, check my knees. Hi. Hello. I want to start off by congratulating you on your win as the first ever queen of all queens in the drag race pantheon. I'm wondering how this feels compared to 2013, being that drag race was so different then, you were undoubtedly different then, and the world was quite different then. I think the biggest way it feels different is I'm prepared and I'm ready you know, um, it's one of those things where I would occasionally watch episodes from season five and think, oh, if I had a do-over, I'd wear this wig and I'd pair it with that outfit and I'd tackle the challenge this way. And, you know, there are no do-overs in life, but occasionally you get a chance to do something very similar and show, hey, look at what I can do 10 years later. So <laughs> that's kind of the magical thing about All Stars is you get to see queens who made a big impact the first time um, they went on Drag Race. But you get to see what they do with um, some more time and some more experience and some more expertise under their belt. Fitting the season into what's going on to the world um, makes perfect sense to me because this season was all about celebrating each of us. Um, it was all about uplifting um, the winners from past seasons and the camaraderie and the sisterhood that we formed within the cast is a perfect example, I think, of how good work and good things can come from sharing positivity, sharing support and love and uplifting and celebrating one another. Uh, oh God, I mean, I don't need to recap what's happening in the world, but I think it goes without saying that we could use a little more positivity, celebration and uplifting at this point in time. <laughs> Amen. And, and this show gave us weeks and weeks of that. During an impromptu winner's speech you gave during a live show in Australia, you spoke about the collective trauma we've all been through. We're at a point in time where we could like stand to celebrate one another a little bit more, you know? We just lived through something truly, truly lasting, you know, like we're gonna have an impression on us for the rest of our lives because of the collective trauma we've been through as a globe. You are someone whose livelihood depends on travel and getting in rooms with lots of people. So with some degree of hindsight, how did that time away from the stage affect you? Well, I think it's deepened my appreciation for what I get to do. And I think a lot of queens can attest to that, you know. I, I, I often joked that I was just as busy working from home as I was um, when, before the pandemic. So I definitely kept busy, but there's just no way to synthesize that experience of interacting with a live audience or that shared experience of this is happening just here right now and it can never be recreated. You know, that, that sense of spontaneity and, uh, realness, I guess. Let's use the word realness. RuPaul uses it all the time. <laughs> it's definitely deepened my appreciation for what I get to do for a job, which for all into... <laughs> when you look at my job on paper, it, it looks completely made up. It looks... <laughs> it looks like... It looks like it was something a toddler would say their dream job is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is something that is so unusual for all of us, but thinking about it through the lens of a performer in which they all sort of just hung up the microphone and that that changes us as a society, both you as a performer, us as audience members, again, for myriad reasons beyond just, you know, performing and audiences. But when you did finally have that moment and you were able to reconnect with your audience, and I say your audience because you have such a loyal audience, what was that first moment like? It's been a two-way street. The deeper appreciation I feel I can sense from my audience, too. It's kind of like, um, I don't know. It, 
just unadulterated support and love every time I step onto the stage these days, you know. Um, I did a gig in Calgary recently. It was an outdoor music festival, and there were just so many people um, foaming at the mouths. Oh, that makes it sound like they were all (laughs) healthy. Don't worry. Um, Just so many people excited to see it was me and Monet and Evie and Lady Camden performing for this outdoor music festival in Calgary, Canada. And the energy was so electric, so palpable. Oh, and Carson Kressley and Michelle Visage were hosting. Uh, uh, Jada was supposed to be there, but missed a flight. So everyone understood. There was no people like, we demand retribution. (laughs) Like I found that people have just been really understanding and really like gracious and just happy to be back at it. And I feel like in the past, um, you know, ticket holders are not shy about letting you know when they're like disappointed (laughs) in something. But lately, it's felt like it's been more like, "Hey, we're just happy to be here, you know? Okay, so we have to stand five feet apart. At least I still get to, like, talk to the person, you know? We got to keep a mask on for the photo. Eh, that's that's fine. At least we're all back at it, you know? Um, at least that's what I've witnessed, and I hope that that can continue because, you know, the more precautions and safety protocol that we take the more we get to keep opening up the industry. (laughs) Before we get into more, let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsor. The hot days of summer mean only one thing. I need a can of something. And not just any something, a can of can. Can is the queer-founded, cannabis-infused social tonic that is the summer beverage I cannot be without. Each can is made from five ingredients, fresh juice, herbs, agave nectar, cannabis extract, and water. The fresh juice is no BS either, with sourced ingredients like Sicilian lemons, Fijian ginger, and Massachusetts cranberries. Yum. My favorite flavor, you ask? Well, I'm currently a pineapple jalapeno kind of gal, but a cloudy apple rhubarb light always manages to hit the spot too. And look, it may not be the season of giving, but that doesn't mean you can't receive. Shut Up Evan listeners can receive 50% off their first order of can. Yes, that's 50% off. Go to drinkcan.com and use promo code ERK50. That's drinkcan.com, D-R-I-N-K-C-A-N-N.com, and use promo code ERK50 for 50% off. Let summer go to your head by sipping on some cans. And we're back. I want to shift to discuss All Star 7, but I want to bring in a big, big fan of yours that wanted to ask a question. Hi, Jinx. Uh, this is Ant. Uh, so I wanted to let you know that I'm a massive fan of yours. Your Snatch King this season was so good. Um, I think you're insanely talented and you're my favorite multi-hyphenate to probably ever grace the set of Drag Race. Okay, so that said, um, I meant to ask you a question. So here it is. So on this season of All Stars, who surprised you the most? It could be in regards to talent, um, their personality, their friendship, looks that they brought. Anyway, keep being you, keep doing what you do, and know that you are absolutely adored. Much love. Mwah. That's so sweet. Um, I gotta say, I love the cast of um, Queer Eye. I, I, I wrote a joke into um, my most recent um, original show, um, which is set in the future, and Jinx is looking back on her career in her in her 80s, um, and we do a little recap of, uh, of the way we do a little like um, slideshow honoring all our friends who have passed on <laughs> so that we could get a couple reads and burns in. But um, our joke about the cast of Queer Eye is we say that they um, they formed a collective consciousness and like <laughs> evolved into one so we say their new show is called Queer All Seeing Eye, and we have a picture of um, Sauron come up on the screen, and I think it's so funny. The audience chuckles at it, but I keep the joke in because <laughs> I think it's hilarious. But 
the person who surprised <laughs> me the most. You know, it's hard to say surprised because this was a cast of, you know, like just such incredibly talented people and they all they all won their season based on their heart and their their character and their gumption and their talent. Um, but I think um, I always felt a kinship with Evie Oddly, but we had never really like met or and we had only like sparsely interacted before we filmed our season together. So I think getting to be her friend, getting to know more about her, getting to know about the way her brain works, finding the like similarities between us. That surprised me in a really pleasant way. And then I think the biggest surprise overall of the season for me was when I won, I was so new to social media. I was so like green in the scope of entertainment at large um, that it really was hard not to get sucked into the negative side of all of it, you know? And when you win, there's always people who wanted someone else to win. And and they become very vocal after you win. And I was, I spent years just feeling like, oh, I felt like I was the winner that was disputed, you know? Like, I felt like, Oh, I, I I'm dealing with so many Alaska fans who probably wish I hadn't won, and I hadn't realized that every winner goes through that, you know. And we we opened up to each other very early on in the competition, and all kind of shared our own stories of like the self doubt that creeps in, and you know we all had our own turn of dealing with you know, just the the negative people out there who want to just rob you of joy. And we made a pact um, as a cast that we would do everything we can um, post-season filming, post-airing to, like, uplift each other so that we can, um, you know, push that negativity out of the way and not let anyone rob our joy from this season because we have so much so much to be joyful about. <laughs> I've noticed that online, there's been a couple instances where a fan will come after one of the queens and I'll see several of the queens come forward and kind of squash that bug, if you will, and uh, defend their sister. And I think it's a lovely thing. And like you said, it's a shared experience. I mean, being on the show alone puts you uh, you know, within a sisterhood, but especially so when you share that commonality of all being winners and then all having an opportunity to be together. When you were sort of weighing whether or not to come back for these for this all winner season, what did you see as the pros and what did you see as the cons? Um, the pros were the chance to get to show all the ways in which I've grown and evolved and all the ways in which I've like, um, you know, honed in on what I do as a drag performer and as an entertainer. Um, and the cons were, I had a mentality of, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. You know, <laughs> like I had such a good time with season five. And since season five, I feel like I've really like found my niche and um, where I fit into the the drag world at large. And there was a part of me that was like, you know, I don't want to go on and um, have the opposite happen, you know, like <laughs> go on talking like, wait until you see me do comedy, wait until you see me do acting and then like fall flat on my face. But um, I really had to trust the production um, that this was a celebratory season. And um, production took such good care of us um, in many, many ways throughout, like as in giving us everything we needed to do our best. It was the right time. A big reason why I chose to go on was I was almost two years sober when I agreed to go on. I was like, I think just at two years sober from alcohol when we were filming. I'm now at three years sober because it took so long for the season <laughs> to come out. But I just like I've been experiencing this kind of like clarity and motivation and drive in my work that I hadn't really lost touch of while I was drinking, but it was being clouded while I was drinking. And drinking was standing in the way of me 
being my best at all times. So um, when they gave me the call, I mean, I had just married my husband. I was almost two years sober. I've done all this work with Ben de la Creme that I'm super proud of with our live tours and our our filmed special, um, which you can watch by going to jinxandela.com or if you're in the States, you can watch it on Hulu. I just had so much that I was proud of and in so many ways I felt ready for like the next chapter in in my life. And so um, I think in the end it was my husband saying, if you don't do it, when we watch it later, are you going to just sit there kicking yourself that you didn't do it? And I said, um, probably. So there's only one way to prevent that. So you mentioned this sort of, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And I think that can very much be said about your performance on Snatch Game in season five <laughs> with this little Edie performance. So I'm wondering with that mentality and no doubt the pressure, what sort of preparation did you do in bringing your, not one, but two performances? One is Judy Garland. as Natasha Leone. It's Natasha Leone. Hey there, Rue. You know we did that flick together. That's right, we did. Yeah. Uh, Don't tell mom the cheerleader's, the cheerleader's a lesbian. Th- yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. What preparation did you do going into Snatch Game? And did you feel at all added pressure in knowing that it was a challenge you more than excelled at your first time out? Thankfully, you stuck the landing. But yeah, talk to me about before that moment. Um, yeah, I think I probably put the most pressure on myself in preparation for Snatch Game. And I think I was most anxious in the challenges that everyone knew I is something in my wheelhouse because, you know, those were the ones where it's like, if you biff this, then what are you even doing here, you know? Um, but with Snatch Game, it was a long winding road because I pretty much decided on Natasha Leone like right away. I had met her a couple times. She's so kind. Um, she's been such a nice person. Um, uh, she hired me to perform at Clea Duvall's um, wedding uh, party with her wife, Mia. And um, so Natasha was like my point person for that gig. <laughs> and it was a lot of fun getting to know her in that way. So I had gotten a little bit of character study. And I think I knew I was going to do Natasha from the get-go. And then my other choice was originally Meryl Streep. And for a long, basically, I went, I flew to L.A. No, I didn't fly to L.A. I actually drove to L.A. because it made packing up all my stuff easier. But I drove to L.A. and I was there about five days before I had to check into the quarantine hotel. And I was running through everything. I was checking all the wigs. I was checking all the costumes. I was getting packages delivered every day. And I was getting everything ready, and I just had this epiphany where I was like, Meryl Streep's not the right choice for this. I've got I've to think of something else. And for like a couple years, I had been toying with this Judy Garland impression, but it was so heavily inspired by my friend Thirsty Burlington, which I brought up on the show, that I really did. I called her and I said, you know, you taught me how to do a good Judy Garland impression. And ours are distinct from each other, but, you know, she was the starter dough. She was the, she was the starter dough for, my, for, for me baking my own Judy Garland um, impersonation. And she was so gracious and she was so excited. Um, And I didn't tell her what it was for, but, you know, we drag queens have a sixth sense for these things. So her her exact words were take it and shine. And then I got off the phone with her and called one of my wig designers. And I was like, I need a Judy Garland wig. Here's some photo inspiration for it. And I need it in like two days. Can you get it to me? And, uh, and luckily they did. And that was Wigs by Tips in San Francisco. Um, while I'm talking about wigs, my my main designer is Wig Chapel in the UK. And Wig Chapel's been keeping me in my signature carrot orange ginger smoothie for the last six years or so now yeah we'd love to see it which winner were you hoping to see enter the workroom and we did not see on this season i would have been 
terrified to compete against Alaska or Bob, but it would also have been a lot of fun competing with them because they're two of my, they're two very, very good friends. Um, I mean, Alaska and I really bonded on season five and since then have become so close. And Bob is just one of my favorite entertainers, period. And we've worked together a lot. And Peaches Christ has adopted both of us as her drag daughters. So technically, technically, she's my drag sister. So I think it would have been a lot of fun to compete with them, but would have been terrifying to compete against them as well. (laughs) Speaking of Alaska, how do you look back at season five with nearly a decade of retrospect? It's often cited as one of the best seasons, though I know it wasn't always the easiest season for you as you were competing. You know, it was a very isolating experience. Uh, The only people I knew going into my season in the cast were Jay Jolie. um, And I had met Detox once. And I knew of Alaska, of course, but I had never met her. Um, By the end, Alaska and I had grown really close. And it really has a lot to do with who you do your makeup next to. And I'll say I I picked the exact same spot for All Star 7 that I got ready in for season five because I'm very superstitious. So through getting ready next to Alaska all season long, her and I grew really, really close. And even though she was a part of Alaska Talks, that doesn't mean that I didn't have a sincere friendship with Alaska and Detox and Roxy. You know, I always say the competition was real and the ca- when the cameras were on, everything you see is is real but then the cameras would turn off and we'd all have to go like eat dinner together and we always found a way to leave it at the door and just sit and enjoy each other's company for dinner and in that we all grew very close and in all star seven i took my same makeup position and right next to me was monet and she became my confidant and my best friend in the competition and We just cracked each other up constantly. And how poetic then that you and Monet were able to finish out the season together. Um, I want to have one last call in. It's from one of your season five sisters. Ooh. Hi, Jinx. It's me, Detox. Congratulations. I'm so proud of you. I'm so excited for you. I have just a few questions. My first being, considering we're old sisters and all, I just want to know, why it's so impossible to get you to reply to any of my text messages, but I see you reply to every verified comment on Instagram. <laughs> my second question is, just exactly how many shades of peach is it that you use on your foundation? And where does the foundation <laughs> stop? You know, I love you, peaches and cream. Congratulations. I'm texting her right now. It's so funny. Look at this. We've been having conversations all throughout the year. Look at all those blue Mm. messages. That's from me. Listen, this is receipts right here. I don't know what she's talking about replying to every verified comment on this. Whatever. I know she's hilarious. Um, (laughs) Listen, I, 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 I know she... She knows me so well. She knows the exact questions um, to ask to like set off my Virgo anxiety. Like exactly. I started texting her immediately. Um, So to answer her question, question one was a false question. So I'm skipping that. Um, uh, Question two, my colors, my foundation colors are actually ultra beige and alabaster. There's no peach in there, but... She's making a joke about how everyone calls me peaches and cream because of the long, extensive uh, makeup process that I do, which you got to see all season seven. Um, What was the third question? Oh, where does the foundation end? It ends at my nipples. Let's take a quick break before we continue and hear from today's sponsor. Can we talk about Sunday Riley? Not only is it the name of not one, but two of my favorite Buffy the Vampire Slayer characters, it also just so happens to be one of my favorite skincare brands. Sunday Riley uses advanced, clinically proven ingredients blended with balancing botanicals for non-irritating, fast-acting formulas. Just because the end of times might be near doesn't mean you can't have great skin. Some of my current obsessions include their global best-selling Good Genes All-in-One Lactic Acid Treatment, CEO 15% Vitamin C Brightening Serum, and their Autocorrect Brightening and Depuffing Eye Contour Cream. As a person with notoriously puffy eyes, the last one is a really saving grace. 
If you want to visibly improve the look and feel of your skin, look no further than Sunday Riley. Sunday Riley is available at Sephora and Sephora.com. And we're back. A big part of your life is travel and not just travel in the United States. You travel all over the world. We had Selma Blair on the podcast recently and we talked about her love of hotels. What part of the travel outside of the obvious things, what parts do you really luxuriate in? Well, I'll say um, air travel is obviously the most efficient way to travel, but airports are the most gender phobic places on the planet. It doesn't matter what airport you're in, where, just the act of having to be gendered so you can be scanned by that radiation pod, you know. Do you know they gender you when you step into that? They they have to, like, um, they have to put whether it's a male or a female in the scanner. And oftentimes, they don't ask you what your gender is or how they should be scanning you so I often get misgendered going through the scanner they scan me as female because I'm very femme presenting I completely understand but then the alarms go off when there's something in my crotch that quote-unquote isn't supposed to be there and one time I had a TSA agent scream we got a groin anomaly over here And I remember being so mortified because all the people in um, security were looking at me like, what could the groin anomaly be? But now that's my grinder profile name. So (laughs) I own it. But um, so, you know, airports aren't my favorite, but um, I love a tour bus. I love a tour bus. I love touring um, with, you know, like a group of other performers and all our time from city to city is when we like share our war stories and we stop at gas stations and get ridiculous snacks. Like I love touring in a tour bus. Um, Hotels have become uh, exponentially better. When I quit drinking, I started um, traveling with my PlayStation five. And so I now know how to hook up. I have, I, I have literally dismounted TVs from the walls so that I could hook up my PS5 and then, you know, like assembled it back on the wall because that's my way to wind down now at the end of the night instead of, you know, instead of three vodka, (laughs) vodka waters, vodka ice. (laughs) Um, Now I now I uh, calm down at the end of the night with video games and um, it's more sustainable. <laughs> mm, I can imagine, yeah. <laughs> yeah, instead of waking up hungover for your 7 a.m. flight, yeah. <laughs> you have entered a rare league of two-time reality competition winners. Among them is Survivor's Sandra Diaz-Twine. A number of Drag Race contestants are big Survivor fans, including Monet Exchange, who implemented a Survivor-like strategy on this season of the show. Oh, I know. Oh, I know. I am a huge Survivor (laughs) fan, and I have to wonder, uh, have you ever seen Survivor? You know, I get so much of my pop culture through comedy. Like, I feel like I, I've never seen a single Star Wars movie, but I know everything about Star Wars because it's so vastly covered in pop culture and there's so many parodies and comedy sketches and spoofs and blah 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 so um I feel the same way about Survivor I've never really watched it but I know I think everything I need to know about it (laughs) it's my dream that one day there would be some sort of either Survivor Drag Race crossover or some way in which the queens on Drag Race would somehow wind up on an island and uh, battle it out in some way. I just, I think that these shows are so antithetical in so many ways, but I would love to see them brought together somehow, some way. The crossover I want is um, Drag Race and Chopped. Oh my God. The cooking competition. Chopped is one of my favorite. Do you know, I actually, I binge watched Chopped after season five, I believe. Um, to kind of uh, calm down from <laughs> the reality TV of it all. And it helped me shift my perspective because when I watched Chopped, I would see it's the same, you know, like drama techniques, the same editing techniques of building the drama, building the stakes, building the story. And then at the end of the day, it's just it's just a plate of food. And that really helped me kind of realize like, yes, there's a lot of drama. People, people get 
hung up on things. People get attached to things. Everyone wants to discuss it in the forum that is the internet. Um, And it's all this tongue-in-cheek, funny, campy comedy stuff. So it kind of helped me shift my perspective. Like, yes, a lot of people take this really seriously and want to turn it into a big war on the internet. But it's also just, you know, drag queens being silly goofballs. (laughs) Now, you are a known lover of the theater and a performer of the theater. Keeping it real, do you think that Patti LuPone deserved the 2022 Tony for Featured Actress in a Musical? I am a huge Patti fan. I'm not uh, shitting on her by any measure. For me, that wasn't the role. But I'm just curious your take. Um, I don't pay attention to award shows very often. I I normally find out weeks later. But... um... (laughs) Sorry. I I did know Jesse Tyler Ferguson one because I was in the Delta Sky Lounge and it was playing in the Delta Sky Lounge and I saw him accepting his Tony and I immediately texted him congratulations. So I keep up, you know, when I accidentally see things. But I will say I saw Patti Lapone in the role of um, in company on the West End Um and I was just transfixed the entire time. I mean, part of it was because it was Patti Lapone, but I have to say, it she delivered Ladies Who Lunch seated. She was seated the entire time with like a jacket on her shoulders. And it's like, I could feel the whole audience was waiting for this one number. It was like the whole show was building up to Patti Lapone singing Ladies Who Lunch. And I was con- like contemplating all the different ways. I wonder how they like reinvented it for Patti. I wonder how they like made it bigger and better than we've ever seen it before. And in the end, she delivered it seated and she commanded so much power from a seated position, from a relaxed position, with a jacket, like, just kind of, like, hanging off her shoulders. So if she gestured too wildly, the jacket would fall off. There was something about the, like, ease and comfort and relaxation with which she performed that song that made it ten times more powerful than I've ever seen it performed. It was a real... It was a real power move. <laughs> All right, you've convinced me. I feel like I was a little dismissive of that performance in the in the pantheon of Patty performances. But now that you sort of frame it that way, I'm kind of like, you know what? She deserved the award. Well, you know, when she won the Tony for Gypsy, she hadn't won a Tony for like 10 years. It was like Evita, 30 years later, <laughs> Gypsy. Um... I think it was like 30 years because she won Evita in the 80s. And Anyway, so she hadn't won a Tony for like 30 years. And then her critics, the people who the naysayers out there was like, she was too, she was too um, animated. She was too much like a drag queen. She was too campy for this role. People had a lot of critiques. But she still won the she still won the Tony. And then I wonder if there's a part of her that was like, oh, you think I'm too campy? You think I'm too animated? Watch this. I'll win a Tony seated with a jacket on my shoulders. And I can kind of relate to that because even though I don't like to let the critiques affect my work, I do see them. And sometimes I develop a vendetta. Like, uh, I mean, there were aspects of All Star 7 that was just me like having a personal vendetta against people. Oh, you think I can't do this? Watch me do this. You think I can't do that? Watch me do that. Speaking of great actresses, I want to bring in our surprise guest. Hey, Jinx. It's Hari. I just wanted to tell you how massive of a fan I am and to tell you how incredible of an actor I think you are. You are so committed and natural and charming. And I was wondering, would you ever play a role outside of the Jinx context or even outside of the drag context? And if so, what kind of a role might attract you? Love you. Bye. Okay, first of all, Hari Neff is so amazing. She's doing... I mean, just by being a successful, talented person, she's doing amazing work. She re- started like um, commenting on all my posts on Instagram. And I was like, I was just, it was so sweet. We've been having a little Instagram love affair, Hari and I. So that was such a sweet message. Thank you, Hari. I would definitely, I want to act in any role that feels right, any role that challenges me or that 
um, feels like, oh, it's got to be me playing this role. So any um, roles that are written from experiences that I've actually had so I can share my own story through the portrayal of that role. But I also, you know, like I have dreams of um, playing, uh, you know, roles written for female actors. Um, what I like about genderblind casting, like casting, say, if someone were to cast me as Mrs. Lovett and Sweeney Todd, which is my dream role, I think when you take the casting of an iconic show and throw all the rules and expectations out and cast it for who's right for that role and who's going to tell this story the best, um, and then when you end up with a bunch of uh, actors who are playing against type or actors who are playing a role that they're perfect for, but you've never seen someone like them play that role before. I think that's when you breathe new life into older shows and can make them relevant and answer the question, why this show at this time? So in this production of Sweeney Todd, which I feel like, let's call it an, an inevitability, I feel like it, it's bound to happen. <laughs> um, who do you see playing Sweeney in this production? Like, what if we did an all queer, just an all queer production of uh, Sweeney Todd? And I feel like Sweeney could be Titus Burgess. Um, and I feel like, you know, it would be a really fun challenge for Titus. And he's got the singing voice. What I what I care about is making sure that it's singers playing the roles. <laughs> and I feel like even though Ty, uh, Titus has always played such fancy characters and Sweeney is would be so different. Listen, well, I look forward to seeing that one day. Speaking yeah. of Hari Neff, Hari is going to... She could be Joanna. <laughs> she could be. Oh, God. <laughs> Hari will appear in the upcoming Greta Gerwig film, Barbie. I read that you were a big fan of Barbies as a kid, like many queer people, myself included. We don't know the tone of this film. Like, I don't know if we're getting an Adams Family values type film, if we're getting the Brady Bunch movie, or if we're getting something incredibly earnest. So really, what do you want to see from the Barbie film? Have you, has this, has this been something you've thought about at all? I haven't put a lot of thought into the Barbie movie other than being excited when I see images from it. I was really excited to hear Hari was in it. Um, so my love of Barbies as a kid was really focused on this one Barbie I had. She was like a bridal Barbie, but she had red hair. And I was obsessed with the red hair. And when her head broke off and couldn't be reattached, I just carried the head around. There's pictures of me just carrying around a Barbie head because I was obsessed with the red hair, which is why eventually I made Jinx's... Um, uh, signature hair color. It wasn't the same red. Hers was more of an auburn. Mine is a ginger <laughs> carrot, you know. <laughs> um, ginger carrot smoothie is what I call it. But um, I'm just excited. I, I'm excited anytime we get something. I mean, isn't everyone? We're all excited when we get something nostalgic, but we get to see it in a new way. Kind of like your production of Sweeney Todd. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so yeah, I'll definitely go see that movie. When I quit drinking, my husband and I started going seeing, going and seeing a lot more movies, which I hadn't done in years. And so we go see movies in theaters all the time. And I love going like in the middle of the day when the theater's empty and it's just the two of us in a movie theater. What was the last outstanding movie that you saw in theaters together. Michael is a huge Elton John fan and um, has made me an even bigger Elton John fan in our relationship. And we went and saw Rocket Man and we got like, it was at this theater in London. We got like special seating. We paid for the deluxe experience. And we were going to see it for him. And I sat there bawling the entire movie. Like, it was like, it was Michael's present to go get to see a Rocket Man. And then I somehow made it about myself by just crying through the whole thing. <laughs> and Judy wasn't long after Rocket Man. And I cried through Judy too and I think it's just a trait of drag queens and performers in general that you go see a movie about 
about a performer and you can't help but just sit there and put yourself in those shoes the whole time. Like there were parts in Rocket Man. I'm like, I've been there. There were parts in Judy where I was like, that's me. <laughs> <laughs> but then I also really love like superhero movies. I loved Multiverse of Madness. I actually went and saw that by myself. <laughs> I just sat alone and watched it and loved it. <laughs> mm, a Marvel fan amongst us. <laughs> well, let me ask you about something that in so many ways could not be more opposite of the Marvel films. And that is one of your great inspirations, Betty Davis. There's no one that came after her that followed quite exactly in her footsteps. She remains so singular. Um, she's not an archetype. She she is Betty Davis. And I'm wondering what it is about her that you first latched onto when you were younger. You know, you don't want to see the actor working. But with Betty Davis, it's not that you see the actor working. It's that you see the character working at all times. Because, because like, so you don't want to see the actor working like you don't want to see the actor like making the cleverest choice here. You want to see the actor in the character and all the choices that are made is through the lens of the character. And I think of All About Eve as a perfect example of this. There's this one scene. She's Margot Channing. Um uh, Bill is chasing her around the room trying to calm her down because Margot's been invited to this party. Um, it's the scene that follows, you know, her saying, a milkshake! Um, <laughs> but she's she's like storming around the room and she's trying to like ignore Bill and so she's giving herself all these little activities. But it's the character finding a way to distract herself. And she's roaming around the room. And there's this part where she picks up a chocolate, looks at it, decides not to eat it, and puts it back down. And to me, that was like in that one moment, picking up that chocolate, deciding not to eat it, and setting it back down. To me, that's everything. That That's the whole performance. That's why Betty Davis was Betty Davis. <laughs> I want to go back to your teen years a bit. I read, or rather, I think I heard that you started doing drag at 15. And so I want to know, what was 14 like for you? If I'm correct, 14 was when I... I, I was in ballet and I stepped into the role of um, Mother Simone, when um, someone had to leave this production of La Female Garde. So I stepped into the role of this like crazy um, domineering mother character. And the ballet instructor, you know, put me in a bonnet and a bustle. Um, and it was technically my first drag performance. And um, that was like, that was it. That, I mean, like, <laughs> At that point, I was like, okay, there's something to this. Because for so, you know, like I started acting at a young age and I was in ballet and I just, you know, being a male perceived person, uh, you know, I was never playing the roles I thought I'd be best at playing. I was just playing, you know, like the the roles that, you know, the, the clearly queer kid could excel in. <laughs> But, you know, like when we did Bye Bye Birdie in middle school, I played Mr. McAfee, but I thought I should have been Kim, you know? <laughs> and from there, I started doing drag at this all-ages gay dance club in Portland. And what I would do is I would oftentimes construct my numbers. You know, lots of my numbers were me doing numbers from musicals. So I was playing... I'd play Jack on the weekdays at school and then I on the weekends I'd play the witch because that's the role I thought I'd actually be best at. Um, so that's what drag gave me. It gave me a chance to play the roles that I thought I should be playing, you know? And then when I started creating my own work with drag, it was me writing roles for myself that um, were the kind of roles that I thought I should have been cast in since the beginning. And the only thing that was holding me back was my penis. <laughs> and in drag, that never, that, that's not an issue. <laughs> <laughs> that it is not. 
What was your <laughs> access like to queerness in Portland, Oregon in the 90s? From my understanding, Portland in the 90s was pretty queer. My access to queerness in the 90s was just will and grace. I mean, that's all we really had. And then I came out in, I came out at like age 13. So I guess it might have been 2000 when I came out. I'm mixing up. Um, don't make me do math. But the point is, <laughs> Port Portland is a very, very queer place. So in mainstream media, like I had will and grace and queer as folk. And that was it. You know, and Death Becomes Her, of course, and any other film that was like made for queer people, whether intentionally or not, you know. But when I came out in Portland, I was so lucky because there's a youth um, queer resource center in Portland called SMIRC, which stands for the Sexual Minority Youth Resource Center. And so as soon as I came out, I started spending time there and I met other people my own age who were queer and trans uh, I met allies at that age. So, you know, um, high school wasn't always the, the best place to be a queer person, but I had that dance club. I had the resource center. I had all these outlets as a young queer person in Portland, which I didn't realize until I started traveling the world as an adult that that just doesn't exist a lot of places. You know, normally you have to wait until you're, 21 to go like be in shared spaces and then if your school doesn't have a gay straight alliance you might not be meeting other queer people your age and i think one of my best my biggest privileges in life was as soon as i came out i was surrounded by peers which means i got to go through my adolescence as a queer person. That's why I've always been a Portland cheerleader and essentially, you know, my family all lives there. I knew I wanted to settle down there again someday. And that's why I bought my house in Portland. That's why I now live there once more. And that's why if I ever raise kids, it'll be in Portland. So no matter who they are, they have um, outlets and resources for them. I'm in the same boat as you. It was Will and Grace, Queer as Folk, and Danny from the real world. It was very limited. And I think about Drag Race and think about the fact that this show has brought hundreds of queer people into small towns, whether it be in the, from the show itself or from the accompanying tours and what have you. And it's created so many versions of queerness that so many people can now imagine for themselves that perhaps us, had we had when we were younger, things might've been different. Though it sounds like you really had access to quite a bit, but I think there are still so many people today in those smaller towns that do not. Okay, one last question before I let you go. I want to talk about your relationship with Bendela Cram. I feel like having someone with whom you connect with on such a deep spiritual level is important, but then to have that person also understand you on a creative level and to be able to help you in both the creation of your work and of a collective work that you together make, that's both so special and so rare. And I'm just wondering what this partnership means to you because it feels like it really transcends the stage and yet it's so much we we those that love you both get to see it on stage and I think we take something from that I think it's also like if you surround yourself by yes men you know if you surround yourself by fans or admirers you get lost in yourself and there's something about working with a partner there's someone always keeping me grounded there's someone always keeping me like focused there's someone always like to bounce ideas off of. Um, ben de la Creme and I, when we met, we just saw so much of a kinship so immediately. Like we both attack drag from the same uh, vantage point, I guess. And we both utilize so many of the same techniques in our drag. And we both have so many of the same inspirations and a shared like language that we communicate in that um she jokes all the time that like when we first met, we knew we had to work together. Otherwise we would have been bitter, bitter rivals. <laughs> it's probably true. Uh, but to have like started my friendship with her before either of us went on drag race and have our friendship persist and strengthen through both of our experiences on drag race. And then to like, you know, almost 10 years later decide to start creating work together. Um, 
in like a true partnership where we're like we really collaborate from start to finish um it's just one of the best like benefits I have in my work because I don't have to do any of this stuff alone and I will say that like my some of my best work if not my best work comes from working with Bendela Cram but also when I you know when we split off and do our solo work I think my solo work has improved from the skills and lessons I've learned from working with Dela. I think my writing's improved. My eye as a producer has improved. We both have informed each other. She's all about like the fourth wall and everything's artifice and everything's scripted and everything's meticulously calculated. Whereas I do that, but then leave room for a lot of like ad-libbing and improv and a lot of like you know, spontaneity on stage. And so we've both kind of take, taken on those aspects in our own work where she's now allowing for a little bit more candor, a little bit more spontaneity, a little bit more intimacy in her work. And I'm um, taking that like heavy structure and letting it inform the work that I create and that's how I created um, my show with Major Scales that I was talking about together again again which is our most convoluted most complicated um, premise where it's 40 years in the future and we're reflecting on our careers which haven't happened yet Um, you know I've, I've found like the beauty in having a meticulously structured and handcrafted show. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Jinx, thank you so much. I am hopeful that on the inevitable all-stars queen of all queens season that will come about in 2083, maybe we will have you back on Drag Race someday. But in the meantime, I know there will be plenty of opportunities to see you live on stage and congratulations once again. Thank you, Evan. Have a great rest of your day. Oh, night. Have a good sleep. <laughs> Shut up, Evan. Shut up, Evan. Shut up, Evan. Oh, Evan, would you just shut up? Shut Up Evan is produced by me, Evan Ross Katz, with audio editing by Sophia Asmuth and social media by Griffin Dunn. Shout out to our Patreon subscribers for their financial support. And thank you to you all, the listeners, for helping us keep the lights on. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.